I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, thanks for joining us for another edition of Three Squares. We are thrilled you are with us. We have another stellar guest today. And we hope that you find the conversation interesting and valuable as well. I'm Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity and Look East, keeping food trustworthy with my co-hosts, Kevin Ryan and Susan Schwally. And I'm Susan Schwally with Circana, where we bring clarity to consumer behavior. And I've been rattling around the food system and market research for a couple decades, studying what consumers eat and drink. And I'm Kevin Ryan with Malachite Strategy and Research, helping uh, CPG and retail companies with the front end of innovation. Exciting, exciting. Well, so today we are excited also to have a guest with us, Christine Doherty. She's a, a lawyer and a, and a doctor and um, I don't know, lots of things. So we'll talk a little bit more with Christine in just a little bit, but she is a global sustainability executive expertise in creating goals and execution plans, managing complex topics, successfully navigating ambiguity which is a challenge, and delivering results. She has expertise in operations and governance and prioritizes business value creation and return on ESG investment. She leans into creating positive impact, proven success, utilizing legal expertise in policy, intellectual property, and innovative technologies. Christine previously worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to identify and evaluate private sector business partners that could help address agriculture and climate change challenges in sub-Saharan Africa. Prior to joining the Gates Foundation, she was VP of Sustainable Agriculture and Responsible Sourcing at PepsiCo, where she drove global transformation and innovation through agriculture solutions. And where I first met Christine was when she worked at Tyson Foods, where she held various roles, including Vice President of Sustainable Food Production. As I mentioned, she holds a number of degrees, a Juris Doctor degree from University of Arkansas School of Law, postdoctoral in plant gene regulation from the University of Florida, PhD in plant physiology from Louisiana State University, as well as a Master of Science degree in plant pathology from Iowa State University. So if your plants need a lawyer, Christine is the person to call. Glad you're with us, Christine. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, Kevin and Susan, really good to be on this podcast with you virtually. Wonderful. Christine, so nice to meet you. My plants probably do need a lawyer, but we can talk about that after the show. Um, and I At really least a protection want to order, if nothing about, else. Pardon? At least a protection order, if nothing else. From me, yeah. Yes, exactly. yeah. Right. You got yeah. it, yeah. They want more <laughs> fertilizer and love. But And I really want to ask you about Bill and Melinda, but we are here to talk about um, sustainability in the food system. So I'm just curious for openers, can you tell us what you see in terms of some of the greatest opportunities to really make a difference in sustainability across, across food and beverage? Yeah, thanks, um, Susan, for that question. You know, as we were just chatting before we started, you know, technology, I think, is going to be something that many companies um, are going to lean into, and especially in agriculture and the food and bev. 
If you think about our supply chain, there are large scale operations uh, in the US and in the world that can use precision agriculture. Um, they know the uh, feet and inches of the edge of a field. They can detect how much fertilizer needs to be used. And then you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. If you're thinking about smallhold farmers in developing countries, pretty much all of them have some type of uh, a, a phone, a, a smart-ish phone. Um, and so they can receive uh, maybe some high resolution images, but they can absolutely get SMS texting, think about pests are coming your way, you might want to, you know, add uh, additional water. So I would I would say that the technology innovation um, is absolutely critical. And then with that is how do large companies uh, report out and work with their supply chain um, on water management, soil health, cold chain, things like that. So I, I see some really interesting things coming down the pike, um, utilizing innovation and sustainability, especially in agriculture. I know you've worked with a lot of companies, Christine, and I'm just curious, like, I know a lot of companies are, you know, they, 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 they talk about sustainability, they're moving toward trying to be greener, but what have you noticed when it comes to like, what are the biggest barriers to really making making a difference, I should say, in, in the sense of sustainability? I mean, are, are you seeing some commonalities among businesses when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, I would say if we rewind the clock and, you know, this is where Charlie and I first met, um, you know, companies started out with true like the CSR, you know, we want to be good in our community. We're going to have a beach cleanup and things like that. And as we've morphed into more sophistication around how companies think about sustainability, th they're looking at combining the sustainability efforts with the business case. And so if you're a for-profit company, you you absolutely need to do the right thing, but is it just a philanthropic that's going to be driven through the foundation, or are you going to be working with the PL owner, the procurement, and those entities so that the product coming into the back of the plant has been produced responsibly? It's got less inputs. It may be a better quality and hopefully you got a better price along the value chain. That's, I think, what's going to drive companies to lean more into sustainability efforts. If they can combine that, doing things responsibly with the business case. I'm going to follow up on that, Christine. Um, you know, all of us who have seen and worked with a number of different companies and I like the way you kind of describe the the evolution, but I still see companies kind of at both ends of that spectrum. There are still companies that are still stuck very much in the in the CSR mentality. We're going to do this because our competitors are doing it and we need to have some kind of report, but they haven't really figured out the business case for it. And then you have those that are actually extracting value and returning some of that value to their supply chain. 
Um, what do you see as the differences between those companies? Is it is it leadership? Is it technology? Is it philosophy? Is it is it where they are in the food system? But what what do you see as the drivers between those two? And how do companies get from from being we'll do this because we have to be from that to we're going to do it because it's good business? Yeah, I, I think all of the above. I think you know the the idea of. Um, leadership and leadership uh, comes not only from the CEO, but if the company has a board, is the board willing to lean in um, and push the management? Um, I also think it it comes from they don't they don't know. If you think about agricultural and food and beverage supply chains, they're pretty complex unless you're just, you know, purchasing a fresh product and you go from a field to the distribution and into the retailer. But if you have a complex um, product, you, you may have the main ingredients, you have other types of seasoning, you may have flavors, you have packaging associated with it. And so those things all lend itself to additional challenges. So having having the uh, ability to um, engage with your supply chain, kind of peel back the onion, ask hard questions um, it is sometimes tough. Where do you start? So companies may not necessarily know where to start. And then the other thing that I think even companies that are doing it right struggle with is silo uh, siloed organizations. So mm -hmm. sustainability may be in this part and they function here, but yet they got a partner with procurement who then partners with the PL owner and everyone is not reporting into a similar organization unless you get all the way to the CEO and they all have different interests. And so that that siloed aspect is tough for many companies to break down those barriers and, and drive it forward. Yeah, it's a great point because I've seen this on on other initiatives, be it animal welfare, environmental improvements. If the PL owner is not bought in, it's short lived. That's correct. Yeah. That's why the business case, in my opinion, is so very important because if if you're the PL owner and your cost input is X, and I can then say, well, I've worked with our suppliers and supply chain, and we're going to reduce the amount of um, input on the, the product in question, and we're gonna have a better product and we're a farmer loyalty and we've driven down the cost slightly or it's cost neutral, that should make that should make you happy. You're not gonna be happy if I come and say, hey, it's gonna cost you a now, you know, another dollar uh, per item or a dollar a pound. You're gonna be like, Christine, go talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me follow up on that, I'm, I'm, and I'll, I'll stop hogging the conversation after this one, I promise. Um, so during the pandemic, you know, we we saw a great deal of increased awareness of, of the fragility in the supply chain. Um, and a lot of organizations have transitioned or at least considering just in case, not just in time, right? So it's, it's not just, just in time alone is no longer sufficient. There's also the just in case. People have realized that with climate change and that many smallholders are one weather event or one economic event from no longer being in business, that we've got to focus on resiliency across the entire supply chain. But it also has to focus on resiliency of the primary producer, because if there is no primary producer, there is no supply chain. 
And yet we still see many sustainability mandates come with little or no economic incentive, especially for primary producers. Now, your, your one of your previous employers, PepsiCo, I think has some fairly innovative initiatives and is, is doing some things there that I think are interesting. Not asking you to comment on that one specifically, but, but what mechanisms have you seen that work to incent or reward primary producers for adopting these change in practices? Yeah, I, you know, farmers, primary producers, you know, they're, they're business people. I mean, yes, there may be some individuals that are doing it, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, philanthropic, but uh, those are few and far between. And so they're looking at the changes in practice in the same light that the large scale companies are looking at it. So they want to know if I change this practice, um, what what is the the value that I get? And Charlie, you and I have talked about this in the past. When a farmer has to change a practice, for example, to lean into better soil health, they go through what's called the valley of the death. So they may be producing at a level, they change the practice, and it drops on yield, maybe it drops on quality. And so that drop, and the farmer's losing money. But that practice hopefully is going to make that bell curve come back up and they're going to be better off. The incentive is how do you keep that primary producer par? Mm -hmm. Because the, the margins are razor thin. So things such as uh, grants or subsidies, i.e. we're going to pay you farmer to change to maybe a no-till or strip till or something. Um, and we know it's going to take maybe two planting seasons or two years to get you better soil health so you have to use less fertilizer. Therefore, we're going to keep you whole for that two years. It's not going to be a forever payment, um, but it allows that farmer to get through that valley of the death. The, the other thing that I think we're starting to see um, maybe, you know, in the U.S. and others um, are what types of tax benefits or crop insurance discount can that farmer get so that he or she, if they're doing these practices, can get a reduced premium. Oh, you're going to do this. Therefore, you may be better to withstand a drought or Two, if you do this, um, we may give you a better rate, maybe on a loan or tax. So those are things that if we can figure out how to, to mitigate or reduce that valley of death gap, I think is really important. And then the other thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pause, is having the technical assistance and training for those farmers that want to change. Mm -hmm. Let's think about it in the U.S. When, when I was growing up in Iowa, oh, so many years ago, there were a lot of extension agents all over. And they went to your farm or you could take a soil sample down to the local wherever. And they helped farmers address the issue. Ooh, we have few, if any, extension agents anymore. So those resources are not there for farmers that want to change practices. So providing technical assistance and one, um, you know, there's practical farmers of Iowa that I'm familiar with. They help those farmers on that transition. They give mm -hmm. some suggestions. The farmer to farmer learning that they can 
talk about the practices in the local coffee shop or wherever, absolutely get critical to get those farmers to, to buy into the change. Thank you. So Christine, there's, I, I mean, I'm just fascinating listening to these um, things that you're talking about that, that could potentially, or are moving things in the food system to a more sustainable um, way. One of my favorite questions I want to ask you about this is out of those things, or maybe there's others, if you had a magic wand, it's the magic wand question, Christine, if you had a magic wand and you were, you know, Grand Poobah, the food system for the day, what would be the top thing you'd focus on to make food more sustainable? What's your, what, what horse would you have in the race? Well, um, uh, I have, would have three horses, you know, oh, that way, good. that way you win you place and show. There you go. Yeah, we like a trail. Got, we, like, we like three, power three. <laughs> You get you get three horses to to run. Um, one of my horses, and and we we opened the conversation is a technology innovation horse. I, I think we we've got a lot of really interesting things coming down the pike. Precision ag um, innovation through AI, uh, just uh, biological inputs, water saving technology. So so. Horse technology innovation is one of the, the horses. Got a jockey on that one. Um, the other is around the true um, promoting the sustainable ag practices. And that could come from um, technology, like I said, or learning, but encourage and support. Um, those farmers that want to change um, because they see the business value. They see, I have less input if I do this. We have got to help them get past the valley of the death. And so that promoting from corporations or government or consumers, promoting, promoting that sustainable ag is my second horse. And then the third horse um, is something that, I do personally, and I think everybody can do personally, is let's eat foods in season. Mm. So when I was growing up in Iowa, you know, we we did not have watermelon in December. Right. Why? Because it wasn't in season. And yet when watermelon came around, um, it was great. So as a personal, as the third rice horse is a personal thing that everybody can do is, is push on those in-season foods. And that will really help our ag supply chain and others because, you know, do we really need the, the strawberries and the, and the watermelons yeah. in, in December? Do I need asparagus right now from Peru? Because that's what my husband picked up at the grocery store and my, 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 my head exploded. Correct. But now, with that, you know, in one of the things, you know, I'm learning, my husband and I is, how many different ways can you uh, take different squash and make different things? You know, it, it, it's fun. If you enjoy, if you'd like to innovate, you like to cook, you know, there's plenty of recipes out there. There's plenty of YouTubes. Try something new that you haven't had that's an in-season and a local uh, fruit or vegetable. And let me recommend squash. this this cookbook by Kevin nut. Ryan, Why It Works, the Betty Crocker cookbook that Kevin Ryan wrote. I'll just make that plug for this right now. Christmas is coming up. Honey nut squash on Amazon. Have, have you tried honey, honey nut, nut squash? squash? 
It is amazing. It's it's the it's the mini version of butternut squash. It's like a condensed, very delicious. Oh, uh, I need a recipe. That Kevin. sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's delicious. It's, yeah, it's it's a light more. It's like a stronger flavored acorn squash. It's it's gorgeous. But call wow. honey nut. Honey nut. Yeah. So it's like a mini version. It looks like a mini version of butternut. I thought you were making like a honey nut Cheerio. No, no, I know that's what I thought when I saw it. But situation. I was like really lost there, but. Okay. All right. All right. So switching gears. Uh, so <laughs> I have a question. You, you were talking about consumers and I think the, so I deal a lot with, you know, bigger CPG corporations that are, you know, making big, you know, commitments to sustainability. Mm-hmm. But one of the big things that comes up is that if you, if you talk to most gen pop consumers, they're all for sustainability, as long as they don't have to pay for it in a product. And as long as it tastes the same, and as long as it doesn't, you know, reduce the convenience and all that kind of thing. How do you talk about that with corporations? You know, how do you discuss that disconnect with corporations about, you know, consumers' willingness to pay or consumers' interest and consumers' interest with their continued ability to or continued interest in themselves as a corporation doing sustainability? Yeah, I, that that's a that's a great ke- uh, question, Kevin. And I, I would say, you know, as a consumer, you guys are all consumers. We can go into a, a grocery store or whatnot, and we can pick up something. And I consider myself, you know, pretty savvy. But sometimes there's labels and things on there that I'm like, "What in the world is this?" Mm. And so, you know, I think the idea of how do we educate consumers in a way that is meaningful for them. And you know, I'm going to tell tell the story and again, you know, Charlie will probably smile. So, you know, if you go in and you pick up a, you know, a package of fresh fresh chicken, there's going to be a call out that says no added hormones or steroids in the poultry. And it's going to be there on the label. And there's going to be a little asterisk. And you know, USDA banned that in the early 1950s. And so basically on that label, it says we're following the law because we're not adding added hormones or steroids. And so, but yet if the company doesn't put that on the package, the consumers are going to be like, oh, I'm not buying that. That's bad. So that whole education, um, I think, is absolutely critical. And so if we, we follow that thread, if there is something on a package um, that says this is recyclable, this was made with post-consumer X percentage, does the consumer really know what that means? Mm-hmm. And then two, I have to give credit to companies that are really leaning in um, to some new packaging uh, that is sustainable. And, you know, it may be a slight increase. Will a consumer notice a two cent increase? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. But with that packaging and um, other things, we as a consumer may need to get out of our comfort zone. So let me give you another example. I was just at the store uh, last week and I picked up some uh, chicken and I I won't say the name. You can figure out who. I picked up some chicken and it was in a new packaging. It was in a pouch, did not have a a tray. It did not have the absorbent payout. 
And I brought it back home and I was like, well, this is kind of cool. I kind of like it, you know, whatnot. Well, I opened it and, you know, there could be some juice in there. So uh, you have mm -hmm. to open it carefully, make sure that you're not spreading all over the counter. Some consumers may say, I don't like that. I'm mm -hmm. going back because that's too much pain. Well, if I want recyclable packaging and I want to be helpful to the environment, I got to give a little bit as a consumer. Maybe I got to learn how to open a package. Right. So those are things that I hear and understand. Consumer may not want to pay. I get that. But consumers also have to give a bit. They may have to get out of their comfort zone and change some of the habits in a way that is going to help get us the packaging. Yeah, I saw that at, at Costco on their cashews. They went from having the the hard plastic, the rigid plastic to pouches. And they they say right there on the box and on the package why they made the change. Yeah. Right? That they made the change for reduced packaging, reduced shipping, et cetera. So they, they provided the justification, the why for it. And like, yeah, okay. I guess I could reach into a package as well as a as a carton for, for cashews. Last yeah. question before we go to the quiz. Who's doing it well? If you were going to mm -hmm. hold up two or three examples of companies that are kind of getting it right that others may want to emulate, who would that who would be on that list for you? Well, you know, uh, so I'm not going to name any particular companies so we don't get into a food fight um, with those companies. But I would say those entities that are really, you know, asking the tough questions about their supply chain um, and that they're really going deep and they're reporting both the good and the bad. That's the thing. The companies that have the, you know, ability to have a bit of negative on their report saying, well, we're not there yet, but these are the things we're working on. I have a very high respect for because not everything is positive. So so tell the tell the reader, tell the stakeholder what's good and bad. And then um, the the second thing is those companies that really are thinking about innovation, you know, mm -hmm. new packaging, new new design, uh, um, looking at how to educate the consumer. And then the third thing is those companies that are willing to work collaboratively across the supply chain. Uh, sustainable ag is too big for one company to solve on its own, but can you work with, you know, the primary producers, the insurance entities, the government, the financial entity, the distribution, those entities that are bringing everybody in um, to the table as stakeholders and looking and listening, I think are, are doing well. Yeah, I was glad to hear you say the, those companies that are sharing good and bad. Our, our research would indicate that if you share the good, the bad, the ugly, you actually enhance trust and enhance credibility mm -hmm. because people know things yeah. don't always go the way it's planned, right? We, that would be ideal, but that's not the real world. So you actually enhance your credibility when you share a bit yes. more of what's not going well. Christine, thank you. You are welcome to stick around for the quiz and watch me demolish Susan once again. Uh, I am so happy. I want to. I want to see wait. what this quiz. Yeah, yeah. Take take part. I think our last guest and I demolished you, so I think you Christine did. And I are be you amazing. did. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm I'm a little off my game. I mean, I, I got had a lawyer a, in my corner, Charlie. I had a dominant. I had I had Your a Nebraska well. knowledge. That's what That's you it. have. That's All right. right. We'll I had a good streak going and it's been it's been interrupted, but we'll see what happens today. Okay. All right, Kevin, All right. what are we, All right. what are we we'll talking see. about today? All right. This this uh, this episode, we have it's an autumnal quiz. 
because we are we are definitely in the fall season so everything in this quiz is about autumn and autumn related food bev kind of stuff are there any questions about pumpkin spice can we just there is there is a question about pumpkin spice but the first question is close the first question is this 95 percent of pumpkins grown in the u.s are from what state is it a california b ohio c indiana or d illinois Wow. Go to Indiana. Indiana for Susan, locked in. Go I'll go for another one, Illinois, just for another ice. Illinois. Christine, do you have a guess? What what so California, Ohio, Indiana, or Illinois? Oh well, I'll go Ohio. Okay. Charlie is correct. It is Illinois. And being a proud Illinoisan, yes, Illinoisan, I knew that. Uh, Morton, Illinois, actually considers this, it calls itself the pumpkin capital. I always think it's Eureka, but it's pump, uh, Morton, Illinois. They grow eighty percent of the world's canned pumpkin no in Morton. Wow. Yeah, and Eureka. I'm pretty sure Eureka's up there too. Did, All did, right. Did, so, did you see the 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 Guinness World Record where the gentleman was? It was it. the longest canoe trip in a pumpkin. Yeah. No. <laughs> longest trip. No. Yeah, longest trip in down a river. Pumpkin? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He hollowed out the pumpkin, pumpkin. And, and put it down the river. And it was he had to go a certain distance to break uh-huh. the Guinness World Record. And this was not that long ago. So I, I love like that pumpkin chunking, you know, where oh, they yeah. take pumpkins out yeah. of the air guns. Yes, yeah. those are awesome. Oh. All right, number two, bobbing for apples was Gross. originally associated with what? Was it A, to select a new village leader? Was it B, a courtship ritual? Was it C, an old way to test dental strength? Or was it D, a harvest ritual? Or was it just simply a way to pass viruses across the entire yeah. community and in one fell swoop? That's that's, that's really what it is. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with harvest ritual. Harvest ritual for Charlie. Oh, Susan or Christine? I was going to say. Well, you can you, still say you it. Can say, you can still say it. I'm going to go for the courtship ritual. Okay, Christine got courtship. Susan, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna go with harvest ritual. That's harvest ritual. Courtship. Christine is correct. It is a courtship no ritual. No way. Oh, Originally from the 14th ritual. century, what would happen was is is that uh, the apples would be named with your potential suitor, uh, your your potential male suitor, and then women would try to bob for apples and grab the one that they thought they really you know they had a wow. had a crush on and if you in the oh, wow. the role was if you didn't get it on the first try then you were you know if you did get it on the first try you were fated for love it was kind of like throwing the corsage or, or throwing the, yeah, the, yeah, the bouquet yeah. or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah so it was originally a courtship go. ritual it's that's disgusting one. that's disgusting. you grabbed the wrong apple and you wanted wanted I, steve but you grabbed bob that i think then then that day. was considered fate and then you had to go out oh god that's that's tough I don't know. That's tough. I don't know. It's, it's, All right. It's just ways to hold women back. I know. All right. Okay. Which of the following actually ha- has launched a pumpkin spice version? Everyone's launched a pumpkin spice. Which okay. of the following has actually launched a pumpkin spice? Right. So which one is Crest toothpaste, Gushers, Kool Aid, or Schweppes sparkling water? Which one actually has launched? I'm so only Schweppes. one. Yeah. I'm going to okay. go Schweppes. Schweppes. Christine? Uh, I'll just go with Gushers just just for I don't fun. even know what Gushers is. Candy, the, fr- right? the candy, candy the, like the, oh. the fruit candy. All of you are incorrect. It's Kool-Aid is the only one that has launched a pumpkin spice. Really? They launched a pumpkin spice concentrate. The rest you of had them the men's soap that you circulated, wasn't it? Men's soap that you circulated that was pumpkin yes. spice men's yes, soap. They have done. Yes. Just, just disgusting. Yes. Mm. Uh all right. Next. 
if I gave you the following, what would I be giving you? If I gave you a stinking bishop, a negus, a toso, or a hippocras, what am I giving you? They're all similar versions of the same thing. A stinking bishop, a negus, a toso, or a hypocris. Am I giving you a type of autumn bun? Am I giving you a type of harvest stew? Am I giving you a type of mold wine? Or am I giving you a type of root vegetable? Root vegetable. Root, root vegetable. Christine, uh, just, to, just, just, just to be different, I'm going to go with the mold wine. Charlie is correct. They are all ah. mold wines. Stinking Wait, Bishop of is a British one. Lawyer. And then Negus is also British. Tasso <laughs> is Japanese mold wine. And Hippocras is, as you would guess, is Greek. So they're all hot spiced wines. Oh. All right. Last well, question. Last clearly, question. we've got to go to Charlie's house. Since he won, <laughs> we need to make this. Last one. When and why were corn mazes invented? Was it... The 1700s, corn corn maze walks were a form of monastic meditation built in parts of Italy and Spain. Hmm. Was it the 1820s, the first corn maze or a labyrinth of corn was built in England as a royal diversion to rival French garden hedges? Was it it uh, C, the 1950s, corn mazes, were used by the U.S. military as a way to train troops in navigation and strategy? Or was it D, the 1990s, the first corn maze was a passive art installation at a, at a Pennsylvania college? I'm going A, but I'm surprised there isn't something in there about it's a, a, a vehicle to put women in distress and men rescue them. <laughs> All right, A, 1700s. Monastic. So I, okay. I'm going to go with the alternative to the to the fancy garden. Okay, you're gonna go with the fancy garden in yeah. uh, England, okay, yeah. Christine? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just because you know, I'll pick something different. I'll. What was number C? Was that the military? Military. US military. You are all incorrect. It was the 1990s. The Not first then, corn huh? maze was in 1993 wow. no. at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. It was created wow. by a man named Don France. He's responsible also for producing the Super Bowl halftime shows and Broadway musicals like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Get out! That no. was the first corn maze. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm and challenging then, this. Well, what I want to drop the flag. This is the first time I've ever red flagged you in like three years, Kevin. <laughs> this is consistent. I've done the I've done mazes. the research. I've done I'm sure somebody the somewhere of the corn. I mean, come there was no corn maze in children of the corn, just creepy kids in the same in idea. No, no, like a purposely maze throughout no 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 there's no. no way people haven't had corn mazes till the 1990s 1993 was a really long time ago i hate to tell everybody i know that, but it was. i know it's like 30 30 years ago yeah <laughs> all right hey, thank you everybody one. for joining us kevin thank you so much for the quiz as always i'm glad i was able to to beat susan and christine <laughs> come back again you can play again another time so christine, christine Jordan, thank win, you. so his male ego it's very fragile <laughs> <laughs> he needs to win it's so fragile Thank you so much for joining us, Christine. It was delightful. So much great insight. Thanks to everybody for joining us again. You can reach out to us if you'd like at threesquaresmail at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you on the next edition of Three Squares. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Bye-bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 